We're in our studies in the book of Luke this morning again, and we're at the end of chapter 5. So we're kind of making progress. And uh, this morning we're in Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. The parallel passages are in Mark chapter 2, 18 to 22. You can read those through sometime when you get the time this week. And also Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. So let's read from Luke chapter 5, verse 33. And they, that is John's disciples, as well as a group of Pharisees and scribes, that's the they, and they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. So, men, we're going to learn a little bit about tailoring today. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says, the old is good enough. Now, I'm sure you're wondering this morning, so what are we going to get out of this one? You see, this passage has very often been used in the church to motivate and to justify bringing change of some kind. Whether it's throwing out the old and bringing in the new, for example, doing church, I hate that phrase, but doing church in a new way, it's been used to justify having home churches instead of corporate churches, it's been used to justify bringing in weird and wonderful teachings which no one else has never seen before, but it's new wine, you know. It's been justified, as I heard this past week, from someone saying you need to stop studying and teaching Scripture so intensely and rather live only by the move of the Spirit. Sounds real spiritual, doesn't it? And they would justify that under this new wine. You see, we've got to ask ourselves the question this morning, was what Jesus was teaching, what, what he was teaching about is, was he saying that old is bad and new is good? Is that what he was saying? You see, there's a common thread running through here, and it ties up with last week's passage. And Luke specifically puts it in this order in his account to Theophilus. Because he wants to re-emphasize this teaching that religious works, that clinging to religious works for our righteousness is futile. You see, we looked at that last week, clinging to religious works, to be able to be declared righteous before the Lord, 
and its futility. And that theme carries on this morning. And we have this group. Remember, they'd seen Jesus at the, at the feast that um, Matthew had put on, Levi. And this group of Pharisees had been watching with their binoculars and they'd seen what Jesus had done. And I can just imagine them stirring up some people to say, Hey, go and ask Jesus because we know he's up front with us. You go and ask him a few questions. And so they sent their scribes this group that approaches Jesus next, with these questions. You see, Jesus already had the Pharisees and the religious leaders and their teachings in his sights. What were their teachings? They had the teachings of Judaism, Old Testament Judaism. Jesus had already shown up the Pharisees for not being the spiritual physicians that they should have been to the nation that needed them. And now he teaches them that their system of religion, that is Judaism with its rules and its rights, falls far short of God's way, of God's new way to himself through the Messiah, through this one they didn't even recognize in front of them, through Jesus Christ. The gospel way was God's new way for men to come to him. What Jesus wasn't doing here was he wasn't adding to Judaism. He wasn't seeking to alter what they were already doing. He wasn't trying to see that they could find a way to blend with what they were already doing. He was coming to bring a gospel which would replace the old ways. And the Pharisees failed to and didn't want to see this. And that is why from this moment onwards we find in the accounts of what Jesus does, from this moment onwards, the Pharisees grow openly hostile towards Jesus and towards his ministry until ultimately they get the Romans to execute him. So it's from this point on where Jesus openly confronts them and Judaism that they start looking for a way to end him. So it's an important pivotal moment in the history that we have here. And so we found that uh, this group approaches Jesus in verse 33. And look in your text. He says, this group, they said to him. And we see in the other accounts in Mark and in Matthew that this was John's disciples who were part of this group. But it couldn't just have been John's disciples because it doesn't make sense in the wider context here. There must have been the Pharisees kind of standing behind around them pushing these guys ahead to ask the question. There must have been the scribes that were there as well, the, the lawyers, the religious lawyers. They were being pushed kind of ahead. And I can kind of see the Pharisees saying, hey, you guys, the lawyers, you go and ask him this question. And what was the question? They were coming to Jesus and trying to find fault. They were saying, why do your disciples not fast and pray like us, like John's disciples? Why don't they keep to the prescribed Judaic laws and ways of doing things. And they were putting this to Jesus. You see, Judaism kind of whittled it down to three main religious rituals. Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. If you did those three things, if you prayed, if you fasted, and if you gave alms, then, now alms were money, all right? then you would be a religious person and you would be right with God. But you see, Judaism was more concerned with 
self-righteousness and Jesus knows it about, Judah, about these Pharisees and what they're holding to. Judaism is more concerned about keeping of specific rituals of worship and being seen to be keeping them. That was the important But You need to be seen to be praying. You need to be seen to be fasting. You need to be seen to be giving bags of money or a little bit of money, whatever you had. It was being seen that was important. They were not so concerned for the actual fasting, for the actual prayer, for the actual giving. Those things are good in themselves. They were more concerned about people breaking their rules and about keeping to their traditions than about the actual following of God. They were more concerned about doing religion than about the content of that in itself, of worshipping God, of following God. They'd forgotten that the purpose of fasting and the purpose of prayer and of almsgiving was firstly to spend time with God in fasting. It was to bring your petitions to God in prayer. It was to give of what God had given for you to others out of gratefulness, almsgiving. They'd forgotten what it was about. And so they made these rules about prayer. And I want to share these a little bit with you. They said, if you want to be praying and you want to be religious about it and you want to be right about it, and if you want us to be pleased with you, then you must stop several times a day and formally pray. And they made a rule of it. And so several times they would stop whatever they were doing and they would bow down and very publicly pray. They would do it so that everyone could see them. And they used to say not prayers from the hearts. They used to memorize prayers. And there's a good part of memorizing prayers. But it became more of a rote thing for them. They just said it over and over, the same old prayer. And in a way, it never meant anything to them. And this happened day in, day out. Week in, week out. Sometimes... People use the Lord's Prayer in the same way today. They'll say it over and over. I remember when I was at school, we used to say it every single assembly at school, over and over and over. And after a while, you could say it in your sleep. You didn't even need to think what you were saying. Your lips kind of moved. It wasn't coming from here at all. So they used to pray several times a day in a public place and not from the heart. And that was a rule. They had the rules too about fasting. You see, fasting was often found in the Old Testament, but it's, now listen to me, because otherwise you're going to misunderstand me. It is nowhere commanded in the New Testament as a ritual. Yes, we are told to fast, and we're going to actually stop next week, and I'm going to do a topical sermon for once on fasting. It's something you don't often hear about anymore. It's a spiritual discipline that's been given to us, and we're going to look at it. But it's nowhere commanded as a ritual in Scripture. Nowhere. Back in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29 to 30, we find the original intent of fasting. And that was to humble the soul about sin before God. That's why they're supposed to fast, the people of Israel. God wanted them to stop what they were doing, to humble their souls before Him again, and to think about their sin before him and to make that right. That was the intent of fasting. It was bringing the will into subjection. It was bringing the wants of the body into subjection to the Lord. 
But you see, it didn't take long for people to make this into a meaningless ritual and for Judaism to perfect it into a rule in the New Testament. And so fasting turns into something that they must do. And so the Pharisees decreed that all godly people should fast. Here it is. Here's the rule. Twice a week. And they had specific days too. On Mondays and Thursdays. Thou shalt fast. And if you don't fast, you are wrong. And so what would they do? They'd lead by example. You see, Monday morning they'd get up and they'd look... try and look as bad as they could in the mornings. They'd get up worse looking, shabby, put up their old clothes, don't comb their hair, but like some of the men this last weekend, I must say. And then if they weren't looking bad enough in the mirror, they'd um, get a few ashes from the fireplace. And so men, cosmetics for men was in. Not. They'd get these ashes and they'd put it on their faces. Why? To make themselves look more deathly. More pale. More sick. And then when they were looking real ghastly, they would then step outside into the public, wearing these shabby clothes, and they would walk around literally groaning. People would hear them going, oh, groaning, walking around. And if people didn't get the point, they had a little boy that would run in front of them, and if anyone asked what's wrong with him, then this little boy's job was to say, he's fasting. He's hungry. And so when people saw these Pharisees walking down and they said, hey, what's wrong with him? If someone died, the little boy would say, no, he's actually fasting. And they wanted people to know these things. You see, public fasting. They were all into pious, being seen to be doing this. Isn't that such a contrast to what Jesus says? Turn with me, please. And we're going to be coming back to this passage next week. But turn to Matthew chapter 6. Let's see what Jesus says about fasting. And you'll see it's a day and night difference. Look in your Bibles, please. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 to 17. Look what he says. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. They've been seen. People have recognized, yes, this is a holy man because look how sad he's looking. And they've got their reward already. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, put on that brill cream, make yourself look pretty. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You see, that is how we are to fast. It's a spiritual matter. No one else needs to know what we are going through. If you want to have a time with the Lord, if you want to spend a time in prayer and fasting, do it in such a way that people don't know you're doing it. Don't tell anyone or hint, hey, I can't come to you this Sunday because I'm fasting. Don't tell anyone. It is in secret between you and the Lord. Take your heart before Him. Don't be seen by men. That's what Jesus says. Why does He say that? Because we are so inclined to pride, aren't we? It is a minute and we are proud about what we're doing. And that's why Jesus says, no, you do it between you and your Father. 
You see, there are some today too who would make this fasting into a ritual as well. And they'd say, okay, you need to eat specific food or fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. But you see, that's man-made. It's extra to what Scripture's saying. Jesus gives us that little passage about fasting and he says, now keep to it. Do it before your Father in secret. And then your Father will hear your prayers. We're going to come back to that. And so here, even John the Baptist's disciples, those who didn't actually know the truth too well, because John was in prison at this stage, of course, they couldn't go and ask John, hey, John, tell us, what do we do about Jesus' disciples? They're not fasting. Do we stop as well? Or do we follow the Pharisees? What do we do? They didn't know. And I think, in a way, their request to these disciples must have come a little bit out of, what do we do? What, what is right? And that is the tone that Jesus comes back at with them. And so, do we fast and pray? You see, they might have been tempted to fast so that God would love them more. But Jesus will point out to them what it's all supposed to be about. So, in a way, this passage is not about fasting at all. It's about religious rituals before the Lord. And that's what Jesus points out. Verse 34 and 35, look what he says. He immediately starts a parable. Now, what is a parable? We need to know what parables are. A parable is not just a nice fishing story that you sometimes hear among men who have been fishing. All right? A parable is a story with a lesson in it. And so Jesus immediately paints in this picture of a wedding feast. And he says to them in verse 34, Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? How can you be unhappy when the bridegroom is there and the marriage feast is on? How can you do that? Can you expect the servants to look all glum and to fast, as the Pharisees say you must do? No. When the bridegroom is there, it is a time to be joyous and happy. You see, this is also the first time that this concept of Jesus as the bridegroom is introduced in the New Testament. It's not an Old Testament thing at all. This is the first time Jesus mentions this, being a bridegroom and being with his people. Because God was doing something new and exciting through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was bringing people. Remember who he'd just been with? Tax collectors, thieves, prostitutes. He'd been at this big feast with them at Levi's house. And he was bringing these people the gospel of spiritual deliverance through the message that he was bringing himself. And not just that, he wasn't just bringing a message, he was bringing the very Messiah himself to them. Jesus Christ. He was the one who would make it possible for them to have life everlasting. And so how can this be a time to be sad and somber? How come these Pharisees can then say, you need to be sad? You see, they didn't recognize who, who Jesus was. They didn't want to recognize who he was. They were completely out of touch with reality. They weren't even being the physicians they were supposed to be. It was a time to celebrate. And then Jesus gives a warning. Look at verse 35. Look what he says. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And the word they use for taken away there is a word that literally says, there will come a day when he will be snatched from amongst you. And so what happened in the New Testament? They were with Jesus. The disciples were with him for 
How many years on earth? How many years? Yes. And then what? In the middle of it all, Jesus had talked about his death, and then he was snatched from them. And we find in Luke chapter 24, the disciples all bewildered in a room because Jesus had died. You see, he was referring to his death. And then when he rose again, the fast was over. No longer did they have to come and bear their souls in grief before God because they'd lost Jesus Christ. The the fast was now over. He was risen. And for you and I, the fast is over. Jesus Christ has risen. He's gone back to his Father and here's the joyous news. He's coming back again. So is this a time to fast and be full of grief? No, but it is a time to fast before the Lord over our condition before him. Continually. You see, there's a continual fasting that's to happen. We see that in the early church, Acts 13 and 14. They often fasted, and we're going to come again to this next week. They often fasted because they were heart sick over sin. They often fasted before they sent out the apostles on missionary journeys, before they sought the Lord's face over specific issues. That's when they fasted. But Jesus was saying, for you, it is over. And then to drive home his point, he gives three more parables. And no, you're going to see it's not about fasting at all. It's about breaking away from religious rituals. And he gives three very clear pictures here. Firstly, a picture about a garment. What does he say? Verses 36 to 39. And note the tone here. The tone through all of these is going to be, what's the use? What's the use of, and then he gives an illustration, all right? Right, here's the first one. What's the use of taking a new patch, a patch of cloth from a new cloth, and putting that onto a shabby, old, disused piece of clothing to fix it? What's the use? You see, this new patch that you put on is unshrunken material, and when you try and put a new patch onto old cloth to fix up a tear, what's going to happen? The first time you put it in the wash, the new cloth will shrink, and it will tear the old, the old tear even bigger, and now you've destroyed a new piece of material, and you've destroyed the old piece of material. What's the use? Do you get the tone? What was he talking about? Is he talking about material? No. What was Jesus teaching them here about? He was teaching them about trying to patch the gospel, this new way of Jesus Christ, the new gospel message that he was bringing to his disciples, trying to patch this gospel into the existing Judaistic system, into the worn out garment of rules and regulations. He's saying you can't patch the two together because the new one will tear away from the old. It will destroy the old. You see, God was reaching people now through a new way, through Jesus Christ. And people couldn't come to God through the old way of prescribed rites and rituals any longer. No longer could they bring sacrifice to Him. They now had to come through Him, through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God Himself. They would have to give up the old way and accept the new. They couldn't combine the two of them. Jesus was calling for a gospel of repentance and forgiveness. And it cannot be mixed with a tradition of self-righteousness. It couldn't happen then. It can't happen today. 
If you think you can come to the Lord by being a good person, by being a good Christian, by keeping to specific religious rules, the gospel message says you can't. It will tear away from you. You can't do it that way. Jesus says you can't patch one into the other. It's one or the other. It's the new material that you want. The new cloth you want. Leave the old cloth behind with its tears. Leave it. Then he gives them a second picture. Very interesting one here. About wineskins. You see, those days they didn't have uh, modern vats like we had them. They had these things. Right? Looks very nice, doesn't it? I'd like a glass of wine from one of those. No. An animal skin. Usually a goat skin. And what they do is they used to take the goat out and leave the skin. Alright? And they used to try and do that as, as well as they could. Alright, so um, those of you who know anything about wine, when they say this wine's got a nose, it must have been that, it must have stink. Alright, because I know goats. Anyway, they used to clear out this goat skin, take all the insides out, the fat and everything, cure it, and then they used to stitch it up again as carefully as they could so that at all the holes that were made from taking the legs out, they used to just strip it right down. They used to patch those up and then leave the neck place over here and that's where they used to pour the new wine in. Okay? And then they used to leave that to mature. Beautiful. And so the story here is, you can't put just made wine into worn out wineskins. You see, after a while, what would happen to the old skins? They would get brittle. Those of you who have had old leather lying around that hasn't been treated properly, it cracks, doesn't it? And so, if you go to all this... If you go to all this trouble of making wine, which is quite a process in itself, and then you go and pour this new wine into an old wine skin, what's the use? Because it's just going to burst when fermentation happens and those gases expand from the fermentation process and the wine skin will burst and you're going to lose not just the wine that you've made, you're also going to lose an expensive wine skin because they were. So what's the use? So what is Jesus saying? Why does he tell them about wine skins? Well, here's the lesson. You see, the new way of the gospel is different to the old way of Judaism and the rules and regulations. It's the same lesson. Why does Jesus repeat it three times? Because I think as human beings, we're slightly thick sometimes. All right? And Jesus sometimes has to repeat things over to us. But there's a slight different twist to this, you see. What they were trying to see what they could do is was to integrate Judaism into the gospel. He's saying you can't add the gospel to Judaism, but reverse way, you can't integrate your rules and your regulations into your new Christian walk either. That's not going to work either, because you will burst the wineskin. The gospel is this new wine, you see. Now, there are a few modern organizations around you that are trying to do this. And I'm going to hammer on the same one again called Fresh Expression because it's now part of our Baptist Union. All right? And I'm going to approach them on this at the next gathering later this month. And what they are doing is Fresh Expression, and the intent started well, they want to get alongside non-Christians in a non-threatening way. And so they get alongside them and they try and present the gospel to them by living out love, by getting alongside doing car washes, having combined services with them, putting the bells and smells on, even burning incense, having gongs around so that people feel at home from other religions. And then, 
introducing the gospel as if by stealth. The gospel by stealth. There's usually a clear line between I'm a sinner, now I'm forgiven. There's not going to come a point when you became a Christian you don't quite know how that happened. It's very clear, you see. And that's fresh expression. That's this. It is trying to integrate all those things with Christianity. It can't work. Jesus says it can't. And we have to stay with that. No integration. You can't add Jesus to your religion. It's Jesus alone or nothing. And I'll repeat that. In your life too, you can't integrate what you think is comfortably religious to what is real Christianity. It's Jesus Christ, no rules. Jesus Christ or nothing. You see, we as human beings are like the Pharisees. We like to add things to our lives to make us feel and look more religious sometimes. It's Jesus Christ or nothing. And then he carries on in verse 39 with the last parable. And don't miss it. It's not part of the previous one, by the way. And no one after drinking old wine wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. You see, what was Jesus saying here? He was talking about an attitude problem. Here were people who didn't even want to taste the new wine because they so loved the old wine. And what they'd say is, no, the fully aged wine is pleasant. We don't even want to taste this new wine. They've got so used to their rituals and their religious rites that they don't want to hear anything new. You see, it's so easy to get into a rut and so hard to get out of it. And I'm speaking about religion. And it might be in your life too. Someone once said, the only difference between a rut and a grave is the length and the depth. Tell me, in your Christian walk before the Lord, are you in a spiritual rut? Do you do things the way you do things? Because that's the way you've always done things. And why should I change? Or are you open to what the Holy Spirit shows you in His Word? When He shows you an area in your life that needs renewing, when He shows you an area in your life that needs to be dealt with, do you rather say, I'm used to the way I am, Lord, and I'll leave it that way? You're in a spiritual rut and you're in danger. Get out of that. Stop holding on to the old wine. Look to the new wine that the Spirit is doing in you. You need to be Spirit-led. You need to be Spirit-empowered. He needs to show you in your life what needs to come right. And we need to listen to that. But we like the way we are. Who wants to change? And I'm saying, I'm going to be in trouble now, and I'm going to say it. Some of our older people sometimes, we get into this. I like the way I am. Don't come and tell me anything new now. Well, the Holy Spirit will tell us new things all the time as we read God's Word. And I'm not saying weigh out new things that no one else has heard before. I'm saying truths that He reveals to us in our lives. Are we willing to be changed by Him or would I rather hold on to my religion? That's what Jesus is saying here. Do you get the three pictures? You can't put rules into Christianity. You can't combine your religion with Christianity, and be open to change that the new wine brings, that the Holy Spirit brings in you. You see, it's God-directed change we're talking about here. Are you limiting your spiritual growth? Are you limiting the service you have for the Lord because you don't want to learn new skills to serve the Lord? 
Are you limiting your spiritual growth because you don't want to go when the Holy Spirit has clearly shown you to go and speak to someone and you'd rather not? You're more, you're happier just staying as you are, not being embarrassed by anything. Are you limiting your spiritual growth because you do not want to change from the way you are? And so in summary this morning, when Jesus looks at these questioners in front of him, what is he saying? He's pointing out to them that the gospel is unique. It cannot be combined with anything else. It cannot be mixed with the religion of Judaism. The gospel cannot be mixed with any other religion. It cannot accommodate any other religion either. You know, I'm not going to mention which organization this is because they're very well known. They work overseas and they work amongst um, people who don't know the Lord specifically. And what they've now gone and done is they've gone and said, you can be a Buddhist, but just accept Jesus Christ into your life and then you can go to heaven. You see what they're doing? They're combining into the other. We cannot do that. And this is specifically what Jesus teaches. The gospel replaces all other religions. And all other religions, whether it's Islam, whether it's JWs, it doesn't matter. The gospel replaces all other religions. It is exclusive. And I will say that to the press and anyone who asks me. Yes, Christianity is exclusive in this way. You see, we need to understand this because more and more pressure is being put on us as not just church leaders, but on you as Christians out there in the workplace that we must be tolerant. I'm sure you've heard that one before. You must have religious tolerance. Now, does that mean if someone doesn't agree with me, I take a gun and I go and shoot them? No. That's not the way Christianity works. Other religions might work that way. Jesus says we are to love our enemy. We are to love them in such a way that they see Jesus Christ in us and Jesus Christ shines out of us and they are converted. That's the way of the gospel, you see. It's completely opposite to what the world says. We are not all headed in the same direction as I saw in the press this week. And so, no, I don't have to have a combined religious service with any other religion. You see, how can we? The gospel is headed in completely opposite direction than all other religions. All other religions, including Judaism, Islam, JWs, and I'm picking on those ones because those are the ones that I come into contact with daily, they must do something to earn their salvation. What does Jesus Christ say? There is no way we can get to God if He doesn't do it in us. You see, the Gospel says, you can do nothing. Now hear me when I say this. Christ must do everything. You are saved by grace alone. Through Christ alone. Through faith alone. Christ must do it in you. And yes, there comes a moment in my life when I must say, yes, Lord, I bow to you and I give you my life. But guess what? Jesus gives you that gift anyway to be able to do that. And it is all of him. And no, it's not a popular doctrine to preach today, but it is from God's word. And so we must preach it. And therefore, the gospel is unique. And you know, the the beautiful thing is once we've been saved and Jesus has done it all, He carries on and does it all anyway in our lives. And yes, we have to work with Him in the process of sanctification, becoming more like Him. We work with Jesus. Jesus works in and through us. But He does it all anyway. How can I grow spiritually myself? I can't do it. Jesus must do it. 
You see, nothing I do can bring me closer to God and in a way make me righteous before Him by what I do. It must be what He does in and through me. And so I want to end this morning with three further questions for you. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you if you've got any of this in you. Here's the first question. Have you perhaps somewhere in your life elevated tradition or the comfort of religion above the gospel and the mission of God in your life? When God asks you to do a specific thing or to change or to have a specific part of your life changed because He wants to use you, is there any place in your life where you say, no, I'd rather just carry on as I am because I'm used to the way I do things? Are you open to the mission of God in your life? Maybe you'd rather hold on to that old wine. Second question I want to ask you is this. And this one might hit home a bit. It did to me today. What things do you do to make other people think you're religious or close to God? You know, we often see it when we have someone phone us. How are you today? Oh, hunkadory, box of birds. When in the meantime, it's not that at all. Does that mean we have a whole ranting session on the phone and tears? And, no. But we need to be truthful. What do we do to make other people think we're close to God? We put on this religious air when we meet other people, especially other Christians. Be careful. That's what the Pharisees were doing, you see. And then thirdly, do you sometimes do things to try and get God to love you more? Have you ever been tempted to do things so that God will love you more? Or do you do it out of gratefulness to Him? Do you see the difference? If you're trying to do anything in your life so that God will love you more, then you're in the same trap as the Pharisees. But if you, whatever you do in your life, if you're doing it to glorify God and out of gratefulness for what He's done for you, that's the right attitude to have. That's the spiritual attitude to have. Do you get the difference? I want to put a picture up here. Um, there's a painting I want you to see. It's painted by a very famous person who's a local and who shall remain anonymous. You can find out who that is. But you know, it really gets the message across. What that writing says in the middle there is, I must try harder. And there's a gap in the middle that's supposed to be there. You see, how many times in our lives do we try harder and harder and harder and harder to do what? To please God. Can we ever attain it? No. Unless Jesus Christ does it in us and through his blood, we will never attain anything through our works. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. And so every time you see this painting which is up in our hall, think of that. What am I doing in my life to try and look better before God or other believers? You will never get there. You are living a lie. Do things out of gratefulness to God because of His grace shown to you alone. Do it for that reason alone. And then God will use you. And then you will be part of the new wine that Jesus Christ has brought into your life. You see, Jesus must do it alone in you. And I want to end with 2 Corinthians 5.17. Listen to this truth. Therefore, 
If anyone is in Christ, are you in Christ this morning? Then listen to this. He or she is a new creation. He's created you new. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's the new wine we're talking about. Is it in you this morning? Do you know Jesus Christ, the one who can show you unmerited love or grace in your life? Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, our prayer this morning is that you would save us from ourselves. Because, Lord, how quickly does the pride in us not rise? And the head of pride rises up in our lives and before we know it, we are doing things because we want to please you instead of out of gratefulness to you for what you've done for us already. Lord, show us that nothing we can do can bring us any closer to you if you are not working in that process in us already. That no amount of rules that we try and keep to and no amount of religious rights or our comfortable religious lives before you will bring us any closer to you. But we need to allow your Spirit to show us how you are changing us. And we, allow, we are to allow you to do that work in us. And Lord, when your Spirit shows up areas in our lives that we need changing, when he gives us spiritual direction, Lord, help us to be quick to be obedient and less showy about what we do so that you will be glorified alone and not us at all. May we work for you alone, we pray. Save us from ourselves. Amen.